very wise priest once told me that God only ordains those he can't save by any other means. Um, and I think he was joking, but but there's there's something in that 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 it's an itch, and you feel at some point you've got to scratch that itch. The profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That is the UK's leading Christian magazine, and it brings you this show every week. I'm delighted to say that my guest on The Profile today is Fergus Butler-Galley. Fergus is a writer and a priest who has ministered in London and Liverpool. He's the author of the memoir, Touching Cloth which I can say I personally found to be a highly amusing and entertaining read on what life is like for clergy. Fergus, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be with you. So we always start at the beginning with life growing up. And with you, I wanted to go all the way back to the very beginning because uh, I read a piece of yours that you'd written about um, when you were very young as a baby and actually had to have open heart surgery. So just tell me a bit of that story and how that came about. Yeah, so I was I was born with a congenital heart condition, really. Um, various aspects to it, all sort of technical, but but between a sort of narrowed aorta, a meeting valve, problems with the ventricle, you know, it was a malformed heart, really. Um, and essentially, within the first year of my life, I had to have a year and a half of my life, I had to have open heart surgery three times, um, which obviously is a big, you know, that's risky regardless of the age. Um, and I was my parents' first child, and I think for them it was probably pretty stressful, really. Um, you know, your firstborn child suddenly having to undergo all this, um, all this stuff, all this life-threatening surgery, really. Um, and whilst, you know, I've had to go every year, twice a year to the hospital since checkups, and I'm aware of it, it has, it means I have issues with fitness occasionally i haven't you know apart from very minor things it hasn't really affected my life so it sort of seems a bit like a a bit of a far off thing um it's funny i i i don't sort of i see myself first and foremost as someone who um has a heart issue but undoubtedly it has completely affected my life even though i don't see it as such um i think the big thing that it affected, as I think I mentioned in the book, was that, that actually I wasn't baptised in church. I, I was baptised at home before I went to the hospital. And um, so, yeah, that was that was a... It's a different start to things, I suppose, a different start to Christian journey than than a conventional one, um, I suppose. Is, is what yeah. It is. And uh, just tell us a, a little bit about how, how your parents would have viewed that, I guess, through the lens of faith, that very point you just made about we want Fergus to be baptised. This presumably can't happen for practical reasons in church. We're going to do it at home. So clearly Christian faith was there from the very beginning of your life. Yeah, although I wouldn't, my parents were, and remain, I suppose, in many ways, um, quite sort of old-fashioned conventional church or people, really. Um, me and my siblings, I want to find we were we were baptized, we were christened. I think in part because that was what you did still. You know, this is the Romney Marsh, it's rural, deep rural England. 
and my mother was was just taken a job as a local doctor there. My father was, was an army officer. Um, it was, I suspect, more of a um, a social convention than an explicitly religious one. Although faith was undoubtedly there, and, and certainly we were not brought up in a atheistic household. It wasn't that the religion was bad or wrong and stupid. Um, but it certainly wasn't a household where we went to church regularly. We would go to Christmas and at Easter, probably. Um, it wasn't a household where we read the Bible, really, or prayed together, or or really had talked about religion much. Religion was something other people did, on the whole. We were, we were very glad it was there, and we were prepared to take part in it at key moments, you know. Um, but faith, I think, was was and remains for both my parents quite a private um, You know, it's, it's very much, I think, you know, they are both people of faith, but, but it's somewhat under a bushel, I think. I think it's that, that quite old-fashioned English way of approaching um, mm. faith. I think that, that's bound by, by, by nationality and time and class. Um, I, I think there's something in it that faith wasn't really a sort of thing you wore on your sleeve. Um, but undoubtedly there was, it was there in the bathwater, so to speak, um, Life, you know, there was there was no doubt about that. And I knew what churches you know were like, and, and went into churches, and we had Bibles and prayer books and things at home. So yeah, it was there, but in a slightly ephemeral way. And I think that's the case for for many people. Mm. Many people would sort of describe their faith in those terms, or or even be reluctant to describe their faith from stop because it is well, it's it's sort of there, but it doesn't necessarily affect my life in in the same in the same way it may other people yeah you grew up in an environment where you were going to church i think you said maybe twice a year easter and christmas yeah. you're now in church probably twice a day i would have thought so what yeah. what took you from that kind of slightly more nominal on the edges faith to one where you're you're both feet in well what i always thought i was unusual in in this regard the more i speak to people the more i think this is actually quite often the case in the, that I couldn't speak of or point to a, a road to Damascus moment or a um, burning bush or a, my heart being strangely warmed in a particular place or a particular time. Um, but what I, I can speak of is is the slow, persistent, gradually louder call of God. And um, and that, I think, I used to think that was quite unusual. I thought, you know, to be a proper Christian, Thunderbolt, and that was when you gave your life to Christ. I know people do do that. I'm not. I'm not sort of doing that down. There are plenty of um, you know people I know work with and, and clergy who, who have been hugely formative for who who whom they have been that, that that has been the case. But but for me, I think it was just this slow, gentle call that went from kind of whisper to, to louder. And um, I suppose how it happened again was not through any one moment or any one person. I had always been interested in history as a child. Um, you know, surrounded by family history, military background, and pictures and portraits, remnants, physical remnants of the past around me, uh, old books, um, living in, in an old house and things like that. Sort of, I felt the past very keenly. And I think... I guess, I suppose, at some point as a, as a teenager, 
I, well, I suppose before that, you know, when you want to encounter the past, our parish churches are often the best place to do that because these are places where people have worshipped God sometimes for thousand, you know, over a thousand years, sometimes longer. Um, so I suppose I felt the immense historical lure of sacred space. Um, but, but beyond that, I suppose I, I probably thought, well, if I want to understand the history of this country in particular, you've got to get a grip on, on religion on the past. Now, nowadays we'd probably say, well, of course you have to. But I think there was actually a moment in perhaps the 90s and the noughties in that kind of new atheist swell where that wasn't perhaps a logical thing to conclusion to come to. We well, you know we Tom Holland's Dominion is now is now sort of an accepted text and, and I actually think on the whole people are much more mature about the, the Christian heritage of how a secular world thinks. And and that provides challenge and opportunity for church. But but I think, you know, when I was growing up, um religion was something that was about to die out because of the recent past and actually couldn't really if people were motivated by the economy on this social views you know there wasn't the idea that they actually did this because they believed in god was a bit for the birds really you know the reformation happened for, for economic reasons and uh, you know the great awakening was a was a, was a social phenomenon in class all that sort of post-marxist historical understanding was still kind of in the water i think we've grown up but but i came to the conclusion that actually no that was wrong as a teenager interested in history, I want to study history at university. Um, I thought, well, I better understand this Christianity. So I went along to my local church, church in Kent, on the edge between Weald and um, St. Margaret's Betherston. It's been there since medieval times. It is unremarkable in many, many ways. Um, and the first time I went there, I remember thinking, gosh, it's quite boring. Didn't really, you know, oh, well, right, okay. But and I don't know why. Well, I, I think I do know. Why. I think it's the you've got, but but I couldn't have told you then why. But I sort of felt this sense, oh, I'll go back next month. And then next month I thought, oh, I'll go back in two weeks. And then slowly but surely, I found myself thinking, well, okay, actually I think this is true. And again, I couldn't tell you exactly when that penny dropped. It was a sort of slow motion penny dropping. Um and you know, taking being at that point in my late teens, and thinking as teenage boys do, so well, okay, if I think that's true, then what's next? What's that? How do I then have to live my life? What do I have to do? Having said that's true, now that's still a work in progress. I haven't. I still fail at that all the time um, in terms of living out the consequences, saying that I believe the creeds to be true. Um, but it was that that I suppose set me on the path to to, to heavenly orders, to, to the idea of ministry. It is it's a fascinating story, and um, if you forgive the slight caricature, I can think of Christians who have sort of thought, "Well, all this all this old stuff, old church buildings, the pews, it's just not not relevant for young people. It's not going to interest them. What we need to do is have a big, exciting, loud mm. church with." Uh, with lights and guitars and that's going to attract the young people and and what's so fascinating about your story is it kind of flies in the face of that logic yeah. a little bit it was the ancient tradition the history that as you say quite normal old church that nevertheless god seemed to use that to, yeah. to draw you in through the through the tradition Absolutely. i mean i i lived i mean i i 
because the other side of it is as a, as a teenager, I was living in relatively riotous kind of, you know, I, so I, I was getting bright lights and, you know, that sort of stuff elsewhere. I certainly into my university career, that was, that was, that was the case. Um, the kind of bright lights and all that was happening. And so actually for me, I was looking at church to do something different, to, to speak in a different way, to use different And so for me, you know, living a kind of very exciting life in many ways. Um, and I, you know, I had a very happy teenage period and I had a very happy time in university. I went to parties, I had a lot of fun, I enjoyed myself. No doubt about that, I enjoyed myself. And so for me, actually the church doing something different and making me feel well actually in terms of it both challenging me and calling me in a way that made me feel valued beyond the superficial actually was through a, a an older yeah fustier even um way of doing it and i suppose i know it is so much of great belief that an awful lot of what we call theology is actually a question of taste um but but you know and what, and what someone likes and different people like different things and actually at the time what i liked and what i what i needed to, to refresh what i needed to be the living water was actually the old stuff not something zhuzhi and, and loud and exciting right because my whole life was, was sort of like yes yeah and um i'm sure it's been commented on many many times your age you were ordained very young how do you respond when people sort of act all shocked and surprised but you know were you your 20s were you when you were ordained yeah i was 26 i was 26 um i sort of entered training for age 24 basically well i think in some ways they're they're right statistically i am unusual not not totally i wasn't the youngest at my theological college by a long way. I was the youngest at my ordination, but not by you know, by two or three years rather than by 30 years. Um, so there are young clergy out there. Um, I mean, I always say to them, there is no perfect time to, to respond to the call to ministry. And actually, all Christians from, the, you know, if you're a newly baptized baby to someone on their deathbed, they minister to people, sometimes in a passive way. Um, you know, I have been ministered to by babes in arms that I have baptised, and I have been ministered to by people literally the moment before they die when I so so I, I I'm a great believer that, in, and that's how I understand the priesthood believers that actually every Christian is called to a degree of, of living out the mark of Christ on their lives and and, and to, to to minister. Um, I think the specific call to ordain. Um, in my case, um, again, it sort of goes back to that logical conclusion thing. Um, I suppose for me, it was look, okay, I think this is true. Well, how do I need to act? What do I do about this? What do I feel God is asking me to do? And I suppose it was, well, what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next? I think you do. I suppose I sort of had a sense. Well, at some point, someone's going to say, no, stop that. You don't need to take it to the next stage, but. They didn't, um, and so and people said, "Oh, actually, no. You we do think you you're called to that. We do think that you would you would be living out something by by doing that." So, so 
yeah, it relies on the discernment of others as well, uh, um, as well as the call of God. And I'm very, very thankful for that. A very wise priest once told me that God only ordains those he can't save. And and I think he was joking, but but there's there's something in that 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 it's an itch, and you feel at some point you've got to scratch that. So tell me a little bit about that uh, process, perhaps for those who don't know, well, what is the process to become a, a vicar of the Church of England? What was it like for you? Was it straightforward? Was it was it uh, enjoyable? Was it challenging? Um, there's a lot of filling in forms, like everything in, in modern life. You find yourself filling in the same form so many times, telling the same story over and over again. Um, but that's helpful because that is, you know, I'm, think that's more like iron being tried in the fire or full of soap you know it's sort of the actually that act of of it's 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 sort of that act of refinement um by repeating it i mean so how it starts is is you you say oh you know well i tell you how it almost always starts it starts in question by someone saying have you ever thought It, it i don't know many Certainly, it wasn't my case, and I don't think I know of many priests where they were the ones to first articulate. I think in almost all cases, it's someone, normally a cleric himself, saying, hmm, "Have you ever thought about this?" Um, and sometimes the answer to that question will be no, never. Sometimes it is actually, well, yeah, that, that was in my head. I did think that was something that I might want to do, something I felt God was calling me to do. So, yes, I I started with that with with. A couple of priests who I knew were asking that question, you know, is that something you, you would do? You then go through a process of sort of dis- what you call discernment, where you are um, filling in those forms, you are talking, lots of conversations with people whose job it is to work out whether this is what God and the church thinks to be the right thing. You then go to a panel where you are three days of sort of interviews and tests some psychological, it's quite a draining experience, it's tiring. Um, and at the end of that panel, they say, yeah, we think you should be, or no, you shouldn't. Then go off to training, that's another, in my case, it's three years, because I was young. Um, and then you you go to be a curate, which is a sort of assistant job, working at a church with an incumbent, with someone who's leading that church. And you're sort of helping out your assistant. Um, so all in all, it, it's a process that but will take at least seven or eight years from start of discernment to end of curacy. Do you think that's too long? Sometimes, yes. And there is flexibility. Um, you know, older people don't train for quite as long. People who've already got theology degrees don't take quite as long. It's both too long and not long enough, um, which is a very Anglican answer, I know. But it's true because in some ways there is no form of training you know, to encounter some of the things you will encounter in ministry. You know, you, you can't learn enough about preaching the word of God. You can't learn enough about, you know, ministering to God's people. There is no, um, there is no sort of easy way to tick those boxes. Um, so in that sense, it's not long enough. You know, ideally everyone would be a curate forever. You'd simply be just constantly learning. Because you are, even when you're on the job, you can be ordained for, 50 years and learn something new. Um, that said, there is a sort of, there is a slight sense of some of the bureaucracy. There is, there are times when you feel impatient. 
undoubtedly. Um, and you want to move on to the next step, and you've done your academic training, you're done with the discernment bit, you're done with the curious. Um, but patience is one of the, you know, in the Bible, patience is one of the lessons God is most keen to teach us. Um, and so I've always tried to look at it, and I am an impatient person, deeply impatient person. Um, and I suppose I've always tried to look at it in terms of actually this being time for you to be formed and you will go when you when you need to go and when it's right for you to go. I said you ministered in a number of different locations in the time that you've been ordained. Liverpool and London, what's the similarities and what's the differences when it comes to ordained ministry in Liverpool and in London? Um, well, the similarities are that you, you, you never know who you're going to encounter. Um, uh, but both of these are urban, I was in the middle of cities. And I think when people think of the Church of England, they think of, you know, old maid cycling to Holy Communion, rural church. Uh, vicar's been there. He's been vicar there for 60 years. He's married, buried, baptized the village. It's, it's a comfortable scene where you know everyone, how they're going and what they can do. Um, that's not the case. I don't think that's the case in rural ministry at all, incidentally. But there is certainly the fewer people you have in a place, the, the, the more kind of better you can get to know them. In in both London and Liverpool, the complete unpredictability of what was going to happen, both in terms of who was going to work, walk in the door, what they need, but also just the structure of the day. Um, so that's that's the similarity. Um, in terms of differences, there are quite a few differences. Um, I think Liverpool... Liverpool has a healthier attitude to, to things, to life. London, I found to be a place where people are in a hurry. People are um, self-involved, self, self. You know, there, there is very little sense of a hinterland beyond the self in London. I think it's an enormously um, self-referential, self-interested city in many, many, many ways. Liverpool was the opposite of that. It's a place where people are perhaps too aware of. of of the past and too aware of the of others and the idea of solidarity and community is at the forefront of really the public mind. So that was a big difference. Um, there were technical differences in how churches were run, um, etc. And uh, I certainly had a happier time in Liverpool. Um, but I suppose Liverpool also there's a bit more of a sense of being on the, on the front line. The, the diocese of London in particular is quite. Um, quite kind of removed from the realities of life. Um, it's quite removed from the realities of ministry in the rest of the Church of England. Uh, I think removed from the idea that it ought to behave like other people um, or other places. Whereas Liverpool was very much you know, at the forefront of declining congregations, at the forefront of social problems, poverty, things like that. Um, and I saw that up close, for which I am uh, yeah, that ministry was enormously, enormously formational. Which of these topics has not been covered on PremierChristianity.com? UFOs, near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's Return, the faith of celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. PremierChristianity.com Special podcast subscription offer at PremierChristianity.com slash podcast. 
I mentioned at the beginning, you're the author of a number of books, but the most recent one is Touching Cloth, which I very much enjoyed reading because it is full of very amusing anecdotes. And so it would be remiss of me to do an overly serious interview with you, Fergus. <laughs> and I, I did I did want to ask you maybe to, to retell a couple of my favorite stories from the book. I mean, one that comes to mind was the, the very loud personal alarm which uh, you struggled to switch off, um, you know, had me had me giggling as I was reading the pages of that book. Would you would you fancy retelling the story for us? Well, um, as 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 any clearing knows, there are parts of the church that are off limits to even the clergy. And actually, the we had a room in Liverpool Parish Church uh, where the flower ladies kept things, and there was never any real reason for us to go in there. Um, the clergy until one day where I think we were with some candles needed to get candles and we knew they had some spare ones now the flower ladies would often work in the church on their own and one of the one of the sort of key realities of life in any city but in central liverpool was that that didn't always mean they were safe so the, the church council had come to this sort of compromise whereby the ladies could work on their own often old ladies and but they had to have one of these very loud personal alarms reaper alarms to, to make as much noise as they could if someone was threatened. Now, as far as I know, certainly before and as far as I know since, these were never actually used in anger, but they were there in Flavis. Now, we, my colleagues and I, my um, the pastoral assistant there, who was a sort of now ordained, and then the administrator, we were both rifling through trying to find stuff. When out of a biscuit tin, we knocked one of these personal alarms. Fell the floor and immediately started making the loudest possible noise. So, wee -oh, wee -oh, wee -oh. Loud as it could. We also looked at each other in panic. This was like the stages of grief. Um, you know, first it was denial. You know, no, 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 no that can't have happened. Um, because it really, these are incredibly loud. Uh, and they are designed specifically to get attention. So, suddenly we start, we think, okay, well, what do we do? And we put it back in the box in the sort of vain hope that the magic of being back in the box will stop the, the noise. And you know, the, the biscuit tin is there, and the face of, I think it was the Duchess of Sussex with the raw wedding biscuit tin was just sort of pulsating, like, woo, 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 as the muted noise fired out of this thing. So that obviously wasn't working. So we clicked the thing open, woo, starts going off again. At this point, someone, obviously a member of the public, as they are meant to, came in to see if anything was wrong. So we had to slam the door in the face of the member of the At this point, we're kind of beginning to lose our temple. And um, the flower ladies were often quite creative in their displays. And um, it was not long after Easter. And um, they had had a Calvary, a sort of a garden, Gethsemane, which involved rocks as well. And um, so essentially we got these rocks and like baboons trying to open a nut, started smashing. This alarm, which still kind of going, woo, woo, woo. nothing seemed to work. Um, and I sort of had images of us having to be bricked up in um, some members of the public to be hearing on this wailing wall of Liverpool as, um, as this noise carried on going. And um, members of the public kept on coming in, we kept on slamming the door until in the end, Gene, the, um, the, the PA, the administrator, picked it up and looked at it. It was still going very loudly. And she realized that very simply there was a pin. And it turned the whole thing off. So we wasted about 20 minutes trying to smash it and hide it. Um, 
And I remember walking out and there was sitting this shell-shocked-looking people who had come to the church for them to peace and quiet and had been confronted with this enormous hullabaloo. And um, I was thinking, I think we go away with that. Um, but that was sort of a perhaps a metaphor for going in places where you shouldn't, a metaphor for uh, uh, not having all the tools immediately at your fingertips and, and for simple solutions as well. It's a great uh, story. I imagine these sorts of um, amusing things which happen are all good sermon fodder uh, for, for the next time you're speaking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so- and, and I always say the thing about Church England is sometimes you will simply just have to stop what we're doing and think, how on earth did I get into this situation? And there won't be an obvious answer to that. And and at those moments, you, you really do have to laugh. But they do. You know, sometimes people don't believe them until they're there. And that's why I always tell people, go to go to church, go to your local church, because you will experience a scenario or a situation that will make you laugh and will make you think as well. Um, and will make you think, well, what am I doing? Yeah, and I, th- I think those stories are a really helpful kind of corrective to Christians who might be in danger of taking themselves just a little bit too seriously. We can, we can probably think of people, or even ourselves, who've been a little bit like that, uh, on occasion in the past and it's a reminder that, that these these funny things can happen in church and to christians as much as to anyone else and um while we should of course take god seriously perhaps take ourselves a little bit less so that is absolutely my my attitude uh, i always say i take god profoundly seriously and obviously hopeful for god but that doesn't mean you can't see the ridiculous side of humanity i think actually it's a, it's a good theological that that if we were we are ridiculous, and yet God still chooses to reach out and offer us the means of salvation. There's something or even more. If you think humanity is perfect and serious and, and wonderful and, and to be treated with great august respect, then the, then the need for salvation is somewhat raised. So I'm a great, yeah, I'm a great believer in the ridiculousness of humanity. And uh, I wanted to, to touch as well on, um, I guess, the, the difficulties of, um, of ordination and, and being a priest as well, because you have written in the past about, um, as a church wing vicar, actually experiencing what you call bullying. Mm. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit of, of those circumstances? Um, because I think people will be obviously disheartened to hear that. We like to think, don't we, that churches are these places where where God is and where wonderful things happen. And, and sadly, it's, it is often the case that... Uh, that they're not, uh, and that, that that problems and mistakes can exist in in the institution of the church just as much as anywhere else. But what's your personal experience? Uh, what exactly did you go through? So yeah, I, I mean, I always say to people the problem with churches, both the reason for churches existing and their biggest problem is that they've got people in, uh, and 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 as we just said, people are not. And I think that that you know, like any other environment, the church can be a profoundly harmful and unpleasant place. The problem. The added problem with the church is it's a little bit like it's your family. It can hurt you in, in deeper ways. You know, if your family are rude to you or unpleasant to you, that hurts in a way much more than a stranger does or you or, or even a friend. Um, you know, there's there's some real pain there. And that certainly is my experience in the church. You know, I moved to a job where um I was ostensibly brought in to sort of help during COVID. Um and it soon became clear that I had in fact been brought into very toxic environment. Um, now I'll hold my hand up. People had warned me it was known that this was an unhealthy and unhappy place. 
uh, multiple, you know, the the incumbent had got through five associates in as many years. It was not clearly a place people wanted to stay. It was not a place where people were feeling themselves fulfilled, and it was not a place where people were experiencing the love of God at all. Um, and the sort of model of leadership was one of absolute control. Um, it verged in some cases, I think, on, on spiritual abuse. Um, you know, there were very pernicious and unpleasant rumors that would swill around. Um, anything that strayed outside the direct control um, of the center was, was sort of put down or, or, or shut down. And then just sort of a general invidious, poisonous culture. Uh, and it culminated in, in me being refused Holy Communion by the incumbent on uh, the Sunday before Christmas, November 4, and then being told I wouldn't be welcome to, to preach or, or preside there at Christmas, having nowhere to go on Christmas Day, which is about as far as I can see from the nativity stories you get. And that was for that was for disputing the minutes of a meeting. Uh, you know, it's that level of sort of pettiness. So so I think, you know, very, very toxic weaponizing leadership culture of, of priestliness as well. What it was basically, I think, was a really malicious and nasty theology of priesthood that said, I am priest as center and I cannot challenge it. Um, and I think Christian communities, Church of England, but actually all, all churches have to really guard against that um, and guard against the, the culture the clergy can feel they are perfect or feel that they can behave in a way that is about the putting down of other people. Um, and certainly, yeah, I experienced that first time as a, as a junior cleric. I know members of the laity there experienced it, some of them much more severely. Um, but but a reminder that churches can be very unhealthy and unhappy places as well. And when the church as a, as a building or body or as an institution or clergy as supposed ministers of the gospel, when they are standing in the way of people encountering God, that's when serious questions have to be asked. And then when those questions are asked and the response is to cling on to more power, that's, that's, that's when you are in danger of spiritual territory, as well as it being, frankly, a really destructive working environment. I mentioned, you mentioned rather, the article I wrote. I mean, that was essentially to say you know, the working environment of the Church of England in many cases is not a safe or happy place to be. I think people will, will hear that and and agree with what you said earlier about the, the church is full of people. And so to a certain extent, there, there are always going to be problems. However, I think people would also want to say, but we don't want to use that as some kind of excuse for for terrible behavior, even even abusive behavior. And so what what is the answer? You're someone who says you, you've experienced uh, firsthand where, where churches can go wrong. What is your view on how that can be fixed? Are these structural changes that need to be made so that other priests don't have to go through some of the things that you've gone through? Yeah, I think structural changes are absolutely essential. I think at the moment, there's so much fearfulness in the Church of England, which I always put down to a lack of faith. Quite truly, I, mean, I do mean that, because you only fear when you, you know, perfect love casts out fear. The Bible tells us that. It's very clear. And I always wonder, if you really believed in the sovereignty of Christ, if you really believed in the all-loving nature of God, would you choose to fight these small, petty, protected battles of your own reputation, your own institution? So, on, on my side, it's a spiritual question. I really do believe that. It's a spiritual question. And I think 
that when abuse is encountered, which is which is as we said, is a, is a sad reality in some places of the, of, the, of the human condition. It is the job of the church not to compound that, which is what I think it currently does. I think that's what can be done first and foremost. And I think practically that means um, church and safeguarding stuff should be outside, should be set with independent body. Um, you know, been in the news, two members of the church and the safeguarding body resigned. It was so controlled, so unfairly um, manipulated, really, by the bodies of the church. So, first and foremost, that has to be. I think that's, that's essential. Um, I think the quality of our bishops needs to check. Um, the, the leaders we have in place are not fit for purpose. We are deliberately promoting people whose instincts are to protect the institution, as opposed to seek uh, seeking the path of Christ. And and I think that is not universally the case. But I think it's increasingly the case. And again, that's to me is a sign of institutional decline, an institution that can't trust people to sometimes say, you know what, we got that wrong. Um, confession of sins is absolutely essential to, to, to reconciliation, confession that things have gone wrong. And we seem temperamentally averse to to holding our hands up um, in in cases where this happens and say, you know what, this is wicked, this is wrong. This is this is recent stuff. This is stuff we can remedy, and we chose not to do it. And and that not only makes the church unconvincing as a moral agent in in, in wider society, it's very unconvincing if the bishop criticizes a politician when that bishop themselves can't put their hands up when things have gone wrong. But I think it also it impairs our forgiveness, it impairs our reconciliation, it impairs our our communion, and impairs our journey towards towards perfect union with Christ. So so for me, it's structural problem yes but it's, it's, it, there are theological issues at absolute root of this if it's all that bad why are you still in it why not leave because i still believe in the church of England. I, I i like to say there are two churches of England. there is um the body of bishops and archdeacons not all bishops and archdeacons i should say um i'm moving to a new diocese where i was certainly the contact with the area bishop and the archdeacon has been very good, very, very productive. Um, but 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 the institution does corrupt. So there is there is that layer of the church. And then there are the good ordinary people of God who still are there seeking Jesus Christ in the every square inch of this country. And why I'm in the Church of England as opposed to leaving that is because I, I firmly believe in its its fundamental idea that every single part of this country can and should be consecrated to God. Every single inch of it should have someone who has a concern for the soul of the person who lives there. There is something deeply incarnational to say there is nowhere that is optimal for the church. There isn't. We are not just an assembly of the same. We are not just a, a sort of gathering of like-minded people, but actually we are a church that necessarily goes across the whole country. And that means going across political lines. It means going across theological lines. Um, you know, plenty of church and clergy do not believe the same things as one another, um, and so I, I still deep down believe in that as a, as what I think God wants for the church in this country. I think it is through the church and that that can happen. Yes, and it, it's been said many times before the, the great strength, and some would say also the great weakness of the church of England is its diversity. You just mentioned that two Anglican priests might have really very different ideas on some pretty fundamental issues. And, and that's seen sometimes as a weakness, also seen as a as a strength. Uh, you will know that often the Church of England is described as being 
there's effectively three different categories of Christian. There's the there's the evangelical wing who believe in a kind of personal faith and often a more literal interpretation of scripture. There's the the more liberal wing, which might emphasize reason. And there's the there's the Anglo-Catholic wing, which might emphasize the tradition and the history. I mean, you, I'd be interested in your take on that idea that that is how the church wing operates by holding these three kind of groups in tension. But also, even in, in reading your book and talking to you, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if I could completely peg you, Fergus, as, oh, well, you're squarely on that that wing of the church. Uh, I don't know if you see that as a compliment or not, but but how do you how do you view that? No, I think there is something in that. And I am I'm very grateful for my brothers and sisters in all of those traditions, because I think at their best, all of them bring, you know, a vantage point on the gospel. You, know, you wouldn't say, oh, actually, we can get rid of the gospel according to the because, you know, or, or you know whatever I, I think you know it has biblical precedent it has trinitarian precedent it has and it has basically a rooting in reality different people think about things in different ways and actually god has to be bigger than our petty differences so at its best i think it can be a case whereby you know i i can really learn from the from the sort of scriptural learning of my evangelical practice i can learn about social justice from my, from my liberal practices i can learn about um you know the, the 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 depth and beauty of the tradition, and the beauty of holiness from my Catholic brothers and sisters. But actually, in truth, I think almost all Anglicans are a mix of three. You know, they may have one that sort of bubbles up a bit more, but 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 it isn't the case that that anyone has a monopoly. You know, I know Anglo-Catholic priests who are phenomenal biblical scholars. You know, who really, if you want them to explain to you Gospels and John, they will they will be able to just go through it in an astonishing way. Ditto. You know, the old Anglo Catholic slum priests who were doing social justice work before we even had the concept of social justice. Ditto, you know, liberals and evangelicals who were doing things in a way that's slightly subversive. And I think, I hope that I would model that as well. Um, that, that I'm, I mean, I always say that I'm the old school high church in that I am, I have enormous respect, believe it or not, you know, despite what I've said, I have enormous respect for the structures of the church. I have a great belief in the project of the church in England. I believe in its. Um, you know, I believe in it you know, quite controversially perhaps in some cases. I believe in it being established. I think that is important. I believe in concept of bishops. I believe in the idea that it is, it is an institution should be rigorous and strong. I mean, that's my high church. But actually, the reason why I think it should be rigorous and strong is because I think it's within a rigorous and strong institution you can get creative and independent thinking. Where again, a rigorous and strong institution can have the confidence and faith will allow these other things to happen, to have to allow creativity. And, you know, one of my great regrets is that the Church of England through its history has had people who have done incredible things, have had done inspiring and different things, be that John Wesley, be that new Cardinal Newman, be that you know, various people in the 20s. And we have not had the intellectual bandwidth to be able to to, to sort of keep those people in place. And that, that is my fear for a managerial for a church being run by you know, management consultants and people who are ticking boxes, that which is what I think we currently have. Fundamentally, that is not going to be a place where it is not an institution that has confidence in its own structure in order to enable people throughout it to live the gospel creatively. So, so yes, that's my both ends, which is very Anglican. <laughs> It is. It is very Anglican, but it's a great answer. I, I love what you say there about that. 
all three traditions sort of do run through most Anglicans and often it's just which one is more emphasised as opposed to being entirely binary and and, and sort of having to choose uh, which can, which is a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, if if you were to, to look, if one were to look at the statistics, the figures, the, the church attendance numbers, not just for the Church of England, but actually for a lot of denominations, really most denominations in this country, they are severely trending downwards. Um, you may well be aware of some research that was done recently that even predicted what they called the extinction dates of some of the uh, denominations, that if these current trends continue, there will be a point in the future where there are no people going to, for example, the church in Wales. How concerned are you about just the, the Church of England, of which you are a part, and the numbers showing that fewer and fewer people are going to church as each year goes by? Um, well, I'm not. I'm certainly not naive about it. I'm quite, again, I'm growing up in the generation I've grown up in. Not, for me, that is the norm, almost. You know, the, the norm is the decline of the church. I didn't come into this thinking there's some great new moment um, that I'm part of and then watching it peter out. Well, I, I joined it and joined really, I suppose, a wing of it, as we seem to talk earlier, that was a deliberately fast dead. Um, but again, I go back to theology. Either we believe in a God who comes back from the dead, or we don't. Either we believe in the actual literal truth of the bodily resurrection, or we don't. Now, I do. And, and because I do, I believe the church to be the body of Christ. The thing that 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 rises again, the thing that can take death. So I don't. I think it is it is a literal impossibility for the church to die, i.e., the body of Christ, i.e., the community. I am I am, I am prepared to stake my faith on that because that's what I say when I say the creed. I I you know the, the body of Christ, the resurrection body, the the, the people of the empty tomb cannot die because God has accomplished that. That is, that is what God has done. Now, whether the institutional church dies or whether the church in terms of its buildings and its accounts and things died, well, that's another question. I certainly don't think we should be hurrying its death. I think there is a real dangerous, particularly in the Church of England, there is a desire to hurry decline, a desire to almost get it over and done, to, to abolish um, physical church to abolish um things that have been there for centuries and millennia. I think that is that is mad. But but I think what I would say to to, to Christians is try and be realistic about it. Don't expect <laughs> when you look for miracles, God rarely does them. It's when we it's when we least expect them. It's taken by surprise. God has got surprises. I would suggest that there are you will know good holy people. You will know people whose lives are adverts in and of themselves focus on them focus on those people um draw near to them model yourself on them. that's that's what how i was trying what can i do to model myself on those who i know are attractive in terms of their speaking of the faith so sorry that's a very roundabout way of answering but, but no i i of course i'm concerned about the practicalities but equally I think that God is bigger than the practicalities um, and God is bigger than the technicalities. And what are your hopes for the future, just for yourself? What do you think you'll be doing 
in you know in 20 30 years time do you think you'll still be uh, in the oh. church do you have ambitions beyond that um you know, i imagine some people view the church of england as well you know you progress like you do in any other job you you become a bishop or an archbishop or now how do you view your future in the church certainly i certainly some people I've God has called me to write a book that makes that an absolute impossibility. Which I'm, which I'm hugely pleased about. Um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't see that by any stretch of the imagination. Partly because I don't think that's what God is calling me to do, and I don't think that's where you know we talked at the very start about all Christians, all Christians minister, and I suppose it's about discerning where do my talents lie. You know, Dr. Johnson, the great 18th century writer and moralist, he said, the parable of the talents is the scariest parable in the entire Bible. He said, it's terrifying. Because he was a great believer that he was wasting his talents. So I suppose all I would, would hope to do is, is to use anything I've been given to glorify God. Um, you know, to the greater glory of God. To try and draw more people to know and love Christ. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, now I think the way I would most likely to do that is by rooted in a community to, to live out what I talked about in terms of that that model of, of the real church, the people of God on the ground. They're the ones I want to be in, really. Um, but you know, if people want me to carry on writing, I will carry on writing. I don't want to stop doing that. I think some of the greatest writers in the English language have been clergymen in the church, and at least one daughter of a clergyman. I don't think the two should be separate. So where do I see myself for years time? I don't know. I prepared to be surprised by God, but I would hope a ministering rooted in a place. Um, and if I'm still able to write, then fantastic. Very good. Well, Fergus Butler-Galley, thank you so much for joining us on The Profile. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Sam Howes, and you have been listening to my interview with Fergus Butler-Galley. He is the author of a number of books, including most recently, Touching Cloth. Do check out that book. Lots of fantastic stories and insight into what it's like to be a priest in the Church of England today. If you have enjoyed this conversation, then you are sure to love Premier Christianity magazine because every month we bring you interviews just like the one you've heard, plus the latest features, news, analysis, reviews, columnists, and more, keeping you up to date with all that God is doing in the UK church and beyond. We tackle the big issues to help you live out your faith, and we provide encouragement and inspiration along the way as well. It's all available now. PremierChristianity.com is the place to go to check out our latest online articles. And also, you can get a special offer, meaning you will receive the next three issues, including our Christmas issue, the next three issues in the post for just £5.99. It's a limited time offer, so head now to PremierChristianity.com to take advantage of that special subscription deal. We will be back same time, same place next weekend with another great interview for you. Until then, take care. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.